The Film Comment podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Baccarat from directors Kleber Mendonça-Filo and Giuliano Dornelis, winner of the jury prize at Cannes and an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival. Baccarat is now playing in select cities. Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, digital editor at Film Comment. In the cover story of our March-April issue, Out Now, I write, Kelly Reichardt's deceptively modest epic, First Cow, opens with a wide, static shot of a barge, heavy with consumer goods, pushing down the Columbia River. Like the story that follows, this shot is deceptively straightforward, gesturing toward the themes that the filmmaker has been worrying since her 1994 debut, River of Grass. With First Cow, Reichardt has managed to weave together the various concerns, social, philosophical, economic, and cinematic, that have haunted her films to date, producing a work of remarkable beauty and startling complexity. I sat down with film comment editor-in-chief Nicholas Rapold and Phoebe Chen, contributor to the magazine, to talk about Reichardt's career and her latest, in theaters this week. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is our podcast about First Cow, our cover story for our March-April issue uh, with Truth in Advertising, a lovely cow on the cover, uh, whom we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Um, this is Kelly Reichardt's latest film. It was in the New York Film Festival, um, and I'm very pleased to be joined for this discussion by... Phoebe Chen, grad student, critic freelancer in New York. Uh, welcome, Phoebe, for your first Film Comment podcast. Thank you. Uh, you and, and, and Phoebe can be read in this issue on the movie Emma, um, which you had thoughts about. Yes, feelings about. I did have feelings. Yes. About. So I encourage everyone to read those <laughs> thoughts. Um, and we're also joined by my colleague at the magazine, uh, Clinton Crute. I am the digital editor at Film Comment. And the author of the cover story. That's correct. And Clint, this is also your first time on the podcast. It is. It's not a, not a comfortable position. <laughs> well, you're doing great. Well, thanks. Thanks. Um, and, and just to show how great you're doing, why don't you start us off by telling us a bit about uh, First Cow, uh, which, I mean, is a movie that I've just been crazy to see. I mean... You know, most many of us saw it at the you haven't Film seen Festival. It yet. I have not seen it, <laughs> but once I heard you were writing the essay, well, that's interesting because I, I also haven't seen it yet, which is a which might be a problem for the is, podcast. This is mighty awkward. I'm yeah. hoping Phoebe can jump in. And, uh, it's up to you, Phoebe, to <laughs> sa- right, save this best. podcast. Yeah. So, first cow, I saw it at the festival, and I just really loved it. So, this movie is based on a book by the writer John Raymond, as most of Kelly Reichardt's movies are a book called The Half-Life, which kind of jumps between two time periods. And First Cow kind of just focuses on one of those time periods. I think it's the early 1820s or the early 1800s, the 1820s. The story follows a young man named Cookie, Otis Cookie Figowitz, who is kind of taken along by a troop of trappers or is working out with a troop of trappers as their cook, traveling throughout the northwest of the United States. This is a very long, <laughs> I'm settling in for a very long synopsis of this You're building film. this, you're setting this yeah. scene. So um, he, really it's a story about the friendship between Cookie and this uh, Chinese immigrant who he meets, King Lu. And it's a story about how they kind of struggle to make their way in this kind of um, economic in-between zone and that's that is the frontier of Portland, or I guess of Oregon at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's actually in Portland. Mm-hmm. I think it takes place in Vancouver City, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, right. They kind of uh, have to find find a way of life. They have to kind of set up shop in this uh, this makeshift settlement, um, which involves a bit of a business venture and then involves crossing paths. You might be wondering where the cow comes in. That's at this right. Point. Yes. <laughs> And the cow, um, so 
the the chief factor of the fort who's sort of like the uh local governor played by toby jones played by toby jones yes is interested in having some milk with his breakfast so he so he orders a couple cows or a cow and i think a bull but only the cow arrives and it's being held on his estate and cookie and king lou began to surreptitiously milk the cow at night and then use the milk from the cow to start a business baking kind of gr- grisly looking oily <laughs> cakes as they call them like proto donuts yeah, i feel so cronuts <laughs> yeah. almost um that become they are huge hits with the the uh grimy looking residents of the fort <laughs> and um yeah and that's sort of the the basic framework of the of the story i don't want to give away too much from there but uh they're they're kind of playing a dangerous game Mm. but the stakes throughout seem kind of are low if you will if you will sure i mean it's interesting that you open with uh you say it's a deceptively modest epic and i was thinking about how those words kind of contradict each other but make perfect sense because it feels epic in that it's dealing with something like originary about a history which makes it kind of mythic but it's modest because it's it, it is small and it fo- focuses on really small day-to-day things and so she kind of like takes this big sprawling shape and then puts it into something smaller and it's very interesting to think about the tensions yeah i think that's yeah and i often thought about it as a folk tale too and sort mm, of yeah. like the, the narrative structure very much reminded me of something kind of like really basic well, like a parable that's a like parable a thing to take away from the yeah end. sure um yeah and at the same time it's also just about kind of she focuses often on kind of domestic mm. the m- domestic relationship between these two men and how they just sort of settle in as friends but mm-hmm. i mean i think there's just yeah yeah because it seems initially to be some kind of like mutual sense of opportunity enterprising but then it becomes a genuine friendship but that is sustained through us seeing them like doing chores, mm-hmm. washing things, and, you know, chopping up vegetables at dinner. Um, yeah. 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 They, they almost become kind of domestic partners, basically. Yeah. Because they immediately start kind of making house. Or oh, yeah. That's definitely. Well, there's it, that an amazing scene where, yeah, when they first, when King Lou brings him back mm-hmm. to the house and Cookie immediately goes out and start, he starts sweeping up the floor and then he goes and gra- and plucks yeah. some flowers and brings them in and sets them on the table in a little vase and while King Lou is out chopping wood I think and you just sort mm-hmm. of see this domestic yeah this kind of domestic partnership just kind of yeah it was just immediately instant, yeah. yeah come in, come into play yeah and and I that's just the one immediately kind of warm and beautiful thing in a movie that really manages to get such dramatic heft out of just the formation of a friendship and the dynamics of a friendship you know I was kind of hanging on every other scene just to see what tiny little turn or or shade would be given upon how they relate to each other how much they trust each other um, what they think of the world how they differ in what they think of the world but because it's against such a like traditionally epic setting the settling of the west you know the the frontier country um, that can almost be a little little comical as, as well the, the the difference between it yeah and it reminds i think that uh yeah that epic setting i mean the movie kind of explicitly gestures towards uh mccabe and mrs miller mm-hmm. uh with renee aubergenois um who was also in uh the altman film but i also think it has sort of a similar focus on the day-to-day interactions of people and how how people just sort of how businesses work and how cities work as opposed to heroes and like individuals kind of carving out their lives in the west which i think is more traditionally what uh, westerns kind of focus on and i think that's the epic that we we expect instead we're given this kind of very small domestic economic drama that plays out less as something in which a hero less as a story in which a hero succeeds than as the revelation of a system that kind of squeezes these characters yeah yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's not, it's not like you have a traditional villain per, per se. You just have kind of the way things currently are. And the way things currently are is that the, the place is, is governed and run by basically a governor who's also just kind of a stand-in for like a capitalist guide <laughs> for the beginnings of this, 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 this community um, who is, yeah, I mean, not to immediately get into like class right. analysis. But, but that's a huge part of it. Yeah. 
I mean, I think in all of her films, she focuses on this kind of doing or the making or the getting somewhere without necessarily having gotten there. Um, and like in Meek's Cutoff, I feel like is the most explicit kind of parallel here just because it's set in, on the Oregon Trail in 1845. Um, and they are on a frontier of sorts again. Um, and the whole film is just about them trying to get somewhere and like trying to survive in the desert when they've been lost for weeks because this guy's been leading them astray. Um, and in First Cow as well, you just have them doing things. But it does seem like they, I think King Lou towards the end of the film, he says to Cookie something like, this is after they've made a bunch of money, tokens, whatever, selling the cakes. He says, we haven't even begun yet. And so the sense that there's just another elsewhere to be reached um, that they're not even close to is, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting to see see society in this weird transitional moment, while, but also having a character like mm. a King Lou who's able to com- comment on it in a way yeah. you don't always see. Yeah. And I think he at one point says, like, uh, so history hasn't arrived yeah, yet. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I think there's a there's this there's a couple scenes in the middle of the film, or, or maybe in the earlier part, when they're just lounging around, and he's kind of right. talking about his dreams and his plans for the mm, future, and yeah. trying to come up with business ideas. Yeah. And he has a couple, and he says a couple things like, I think he says, "History hasn't arrived mm. yet. We're just like we're we're here before anybody else got here, so there's opportunity for us still." Mm. But he also says, "Like you need capital." I think at one point, right. Or a theft. Or a crime. Or a crime, yeah. Or a crime, yeah. Or both. Well, technically. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I I like that description of also, Phoebe, about um, Reichardt's movies about being about trying to get somewhere mm-hmm. and not quite getting there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think of Wendy and Lucy oh, yeah, as well. Um, I mean, you be, we've all, I guess, been binging upon her <laughs> movies. Yep. But, um, I, I, yeah, if you if you drew a line to, to Wendy and Lucy, what, what would that look like a bit? If you want to talk a bit about that. It's like Wendy and Lucy is the road movie before the road, right? Um, I think she's, I think Kelly Rickett said this before. She's like, I thought all my films were Westerns, but now I realize everything's a road movie. And everything does seem to be kind of a proto-road movie in that characters are preparing to get somewhere, but by, you know, material circumstance, they can't. So like in Wendy and Lucy, um, Michelle Williams' character, you know, loses her dog and then her car breaks down. And that is clearly, you know, the main impediment to her being on the road in the first place or having even having the opportunity to seek opportunity is, you know, she kind of falls at this first hurdle, which is the truth for like a lot of people in Rykot's films. And it's also the the class issue is that it's also Mm. really another, I mean, it's another movie about a person who's just kind of slips through the cracks of, of whatever system there is. And it it has to essentially rely on like the kindness of strangers. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Which is very much where, I mean, um, Cookie and um, King Lou are very lucky that they found each other Mm. because they complement each other in such a such good way. And I think the other parallel that's often brought up is, uh, you know, Old Joy, another movie about friendship. Mm -hmm. But it's a very different friendship, obviously. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. This one seems to be at the beginning and like the flowering of a friendship. And Old Joy is much more the diverging of a friendship and the end of a friendship, maybe. Yeah. Old Joy... Yeah, there's just something about the particular tragedy of trying to rekindle a friendship, but that is, always seems particularly right. poignant <laughs> to, to me. I don't know why. There did also seem to be this like political backdrop to Old Joy that I didn't catch the first time I watched it. So when when they're about to set off on the road trip, they're kind of driving past all these like houses in Zababia and past these like industrial spaces, and the radio is on. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I didn't catch it the first time. I kind of just disregarded it as ambient noise. But the second time it's like it was a debate about the democratic party and like they're talking about lbj i think it was about the iraq war right i don't remember the specifics i mean i think it was about like like, the democratic party's like reaction or i don't know but it is like some political stuff yeah and that was just kind of it and nothing explicitly surfaces again until one of the characters monologues later yeah yeah i guess there is a bit of echo just in terms of two people who's worldviews are, are being worked out in, in, in yeah. old joy a little bit and 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 might might not yeah might not um jive particularly well and and in in first cow there is the potential for you know for cookie who just seems like the most kindly soul yeah. in the world maybe to get impatient with the hustler kind of yeah. feel yeah. but but he yeah. can yeah 
that kind of like you have these two men who are, have an intimate relationship and then this like external kind of political circumstance infiltrates their friendship yeah and historical circumstance yes, i mean i think in all these all all of her movies i don't know i won't i don't want to be too, too sweeping but it seems that are are about individuals being kind of like swept up by history and by circumstances by by social circumstances beyond their control yeah are much larger than them for, uh, for our cover for this for this issue, which is first cow, we, um, we, we gave it the headline "America: The Early Works." So it's kind of along those lines of like the beginning of one of the many beginnings in American history <laughs> where something's being hammered out. And another, but another idea we had for it was the making of a, the making of Americans. Yes, which is uh, like the Gertrude Stein epic, yeah. but also kind of a also that also is sort of about individuals disappearing into democracy kind of mm, mm-hmm. it's interesting you bring up Gertrude Stein because I remember reading someone quoted a line from I can't remember what it was but it was in regard to road movies and she said something about how America is about mobility and movement and the going places and yeah that seems very mm. kind of pertinent to this as well yeah and I mean so it, I mean it is interesting that that first cow is does end up kind of setting up shop or putting down stakes in a community for, for, for I guess, um, what ends up being much of the movie, the second half of the movie. Um, and I, I guess we could talk a bit about the, the feel of that place and how good um, Kelly Reichardt is and, and her team at, at giving a feel of that place, the feel of the grime. Yeah. Everyone mm-hmm. looking like they haven't shaved in forever and or they're wearing just like bits of different animals, kind of. The trappers in the very beginning, I... I Oh yeah, <laughs> they look like they've basically killed whatever it is, like as a beaver, and just slapped stapled it on. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, added was, it to a pile. And it <laughs> seems like maybe they're uh, non-professional actors, some of them, uh-huh. and yeah, and some of the yeah, the, yeah, I don't know, they're they're crazy looking. Yeah, <laughs> a bit wild-eyed. The large man who sets his baby on the bar. <laughs> oh yeah, and then gets, <laughs> that's someone I. I, I, that's someone I can't remember who it is. Yeah, I, I mean some of the other actors like you kind of recognize. Like, well, yeah, you, you you spotted a cameo that. Oh, and yeah, Stephen Malkmus, uh, pave, of that. of pavement, indie rock legend. Mm. <laughs> I think, yeah, he, he plays the it. Grace Kelly of indie rock, as Courtney <laughs> as Courtney Love called him. Um, he sort of he's one of the kind of yeah, he's a rough looking writer, guys. He yeah, he's playing a fiddle. Yeah. throughout the movie. I really like a phrase you mentioned in your in your article. I'm trying to find it. Oh, you said um, uh, is this space is somewhere between the pastoral and the capitalist, and that it seems like a nice way to think about the settlement as well. Kind of mm. the on this periphery of like the forest and nature, and like yet also you know civilizing forces at work. Yeah, and I uh, yeah I I think that uh, yeah I think that's what she's trying to do there or I, I could be wrong but the other thing that I think that, that she does really well in this movie are these is shoot the natural world mm. and kind of show how I don't know I, I kept reading these shots these kind of deep focus shots of mm. of trees and bushes as and then you see like Cookie and King Lou kind of walking through yeah, this. Yeah, right. The camera these, wouldn't be static and like always there, and then they'd yeah. walk into the shot. And it would just look like they were trapped in this like network in this, and there weren't roads. And this, is, I was looking, you know, I was saying earlier than my notes, I said like no roads, no fences. So the the people are sort of part of this natural world in a way. They're not sort of carving out a world in it. Whereas the chief factor's house is very much. Um, like the the natural world around it is very structured there's a right, fence right, right, right. he's got sort of a field where he's growing a garden where he's growing some food he fences in the cow at the very end mm-hmm. um but yeah i think that that the movie is very much in, in, about this kind of in-between period of history yeah and the chief factor's house itself like be, be, becomes a kind of there's a big contrast there he it's obviously kind of a mm-hmm. stage for showing off who he is but you know um yeah that's another there's there, and and it's funny because there's also like a bit of a um prominent more more prominent than usual for 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 Reichardt's shot of like this 180 thing that she does with the camera. Oh yeah. 
Um, it's also interesting that the yeah, house, I mean, I guess I noticed this because the, the little wooden hut that King Lou and Cookie live in, um, the windows, you know, is just a square. The doorway is just a square. There's no mm. other kind of barrier. But in the house, there are these like gauzy curtains kind of billowing. Yeah. And I don't remember seeing that um, anywhere else in the film. Yeah. Right. And also, yeah. And I think so. Yeah. that. But that shot, that 360 shot, right? That's in, when the when the chief factors kind of pontificating and like talking to people in his, yeah. in his living room and, and it, it goes around, it shows all the people who are watching him and it's like, uh, presumably his wife, she's, uh, indigenous. Yeah. Yeah, presu- yeah. And so she's translating for, um, right. Right. The guest. Yeah. For the guest honor. for, and so, but the, the, and there's another guest who's like presumably the chief of a tribe. Right. And, and these are the people in the room. So you have a ch- yeah. you have the indigenous chief, this kind of in between yeah. translator person, this uh, I don't know captain, the sea captain yeah. who's visiting, and the chief factor, and it's just sort of a, an interesting group of people. I'm, I mean, I'm not sh- so. It's I'm very funny. <laughs> it's like yeah. a very funny scene. Yeah, because yeah. they'll say the 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 chief will say something very extended and and in the oh, yeah. indigenous language and then she'll translate like three words of it because and we know there's more that's funny to them that we don't we aren't getting but you know yeah, yeah. it works yeah i mean the other interesting thing about that scene is when the chief factor kind of he's in he's having some kind of debate with the sea captain about <laughs> how many about how violent that you should be with oh my god yeah with like insubordinate workers <laughs> <Yeah>. and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and whether or not it's worth it to kill one in order to like teach a lesson to yeah, the rest yeah, of them. Yeah. But it's very matter of fact. Yeah. yeah. And I think it just shows like, the, I think that like we were talking about earlier, I think this is kind of like the mentality of this capitalist society that's, that's right. being constructed or that, like that he's constructing. Yeah. 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 Well, and also just ruthless. Yes. Yeah. Ruthless in, in its understanding of what needs to be done in right. order to extract profit from right, the land. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, when you say between the pastor and the capitalist, I'm thinking about this now and, you know, to steal a phrase from Philip Roth, like what is an American pastoral without capitalism? I don't know if that there is even necessarily a distinction yeah. when you bring the pastoral to like this you know, part of the world. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's it's also just a, a also basic level of just trade and trading mm-hmm. yeah. and territory and manifest destiny and just owning like this is his place. This is his territory now. Um, which actually, did we mention why it's called First Cow? I don't know if we've explained that yet. I kind of did, but, I, but oh, it might did? not have made any sense. I mean, it's, oh. we, we, we can very easily explain it again yeah. in that it is the first dairy cow in the region. Yes. Um, the cow is from somewhere in France, Normandy. Oh, yeah, Maybe yeah. finely bred cow. She's the first to come here. Um, As and that's, King Lou that says, she has finer breeding than he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a pity because the the cow probably speaks French and can't understand anything. Right, that's she's going just on, so. isolated. Yeah, um, I just uh, one other. Uh, we have an interview with Kelly Reichardt mm-hmm. in this issue uh, by Hayden Guest, um, who who's director of the Hard Film Archive. So I just wanted to maybe read a little bit from it since it's a really great mm-hmm. interview and she's very um, forthcoming about um, you know her method and her thoughts about making the movie. Um, there's just one thing she says about um, just the what the West might look like. Uh, so she talks. The photo images of the West that have most inspired me are from artists like Stephen Shore and Robert Adams, whose photographs focus on the evolving American landscape, the human footprint on nature, or to borrow a phrase from Manny Farber, the surface funk. I don't know. I just really like that. Maybe I just wanted to say surface funk. <laughs> Um, no, that's really beautiful. Mm. I mean, she's uh, she's just a filmmaker who's always. I remember when we did an inspired feature uh, for certain women, mm. um, and what she talked about the most, I think, was the particular colors. You know, it's it's not like she's just, you know, I mean, she's really looking out for getting a particular color, a particular feel. Um, you know, every every image is 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 being put to work in in some way. Um, and even from this opening, one of the, one of the op- I think it's maybe the opening or next opening shot of a barge that, yeah, that I think Clint, it's the opening shot. The opening shot, yeah. Clint, you write about so well, um, just getting you situated in a place, but also to a pace. Yeah, mm. uh, 
Yeah, and I think she talks about that in the interview too, yeah. right? About how that is sort of a reference to Peter Hutton, who the film mm-hmm. is dedicated to. Yeah. Yeah. So the and it, the film opens with this barge, just very slowly pushing up a river, and um, it's contemporary times before flashing back to mm-hmm. the story. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and it, it's almost like that space ball shot of the ship that just keeps going and going and going and going, <laughs> and going at the beginning of space. <laughs> Well, yeah. but, but better. <laughs> I When I saw that, I kind of went back to all of her other films and noticed that um, in Wendy and Lucy, um, in Meek's Cutoff, and in Certain Women, and now in First Cow, all of them open with a static shot of some kind of vehicle, a train, a boat, whatever, just inching away across the frame. Oh, wow. All of those mm. four open with that. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's like from the top of the frame to the bottom or like just across from left to right. Yeah. And it's just that one, one take. And again, it's yeah. like, you're, you know, it's a ro- the road movie, like things in yeah, transit. Yeah, just going somewhere. That but, whole and for, the, for me, the, signi- for the significance of the barge is also that it's like, you know, and it's about the economy mm-hmm. and it's about mm-hmm. bringing goods to yeah. people and kind of. Mm. But it's also this giant metal thing pushing its way into nature. Mm hmm. And I think it's, it even looks like it's kind of pushing a, upstream. So it's kind of going against nature in some right. way. Hmm. But um, yeah, and I, uh, you're right. And I think that's all I have to say about that <laughs> shot. No, but I think that uh, it does, that it's just such a long, and that you just kind of settle in for the rest of the movie after that. Yeah. And just, yeah. And, and that the quality of the light in that shot, I think, is also really mm-hmm. something that persists throughout the rest of the film as well. It's just a really carefully made movie, too, I think, mm. in the same way. That, and, again, it's a movie about small things, and, and but it's like a carefully made miniature in that way, mm. where the, it looks kind of... Every little detail seems to be right in, right in the right place. Yeah. Mm. I might as well mention the name of the DP, um, Christopher Blauvelt, who shot these images, or oversaw the shooting of these images. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Bakurao from directors Kleber Mendonza-Filo and Giuliano Dornelis, winner of the Jury Prize at Cannes and an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival. Bakurao is a genre-bending fable about a small Brazilian town whose inhabitants, among them the great Sonia Braga, must rise up to resist a mysterious and malevolent invading force led by Udo Kier. Manola Dargis of the New York Times calls it a heart-thumping political allegory that tips its hat to masters like John Carpenter. Bakurao is now playing film at Lincoln Center and IFC Center and coming soon to select cities. There's another bit in the interview that I uh, found really interesting. Um, When she was talking about how there's no agreed-upon currency at this point, so people buying these oily cakes, like some people gave little shells and buttons, other people gave silver coins and... Um, there's, and, there's no coin of the realm, you might say. Right, that we have yet to have a coin of the realm. Um, and she says, you know, so whatever you need or desire is what has value. Um, mm. And it reminded me of a scene in Meek's Cutoff where so, uh, this band, uh, in which a band of, you know, uh, lost wagoners, pioneers trying to cross the trail, um, run into an indigenous, indigenous man, and they're hoping that he'll maybe lead them to water or at least right. to the right place. And then... Michelle Williams' character, she like stitches a, a hole in his shoe or his sock and they have no common language. There's like not even remotely kind of anything like the Chinookwawa that's spoken in First Cow. Yeah. And then, you know, all her friends are like, what are you doing? And she looks at him, she says, I want him to owe me something mm-hmm. and just gives him back the shoe. So she has this kind of transactional exactly, yeah. idea about the world. But then I think he, well, I can't, I don't re- he doesn't owe her anything. Well, yeah, I'm not sure he understood right. that he was meant to owe her anything in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's just like the kind of values that are attached to these abstract things. It's yeah, That's the kind of frontier frontier uh, predicament is always yeah. having to find a foothold, always having to find an inn yeah. to find some way to get get purchased. Like even when in First Cow, when they're selling the oily cakes, there's the there's the there's the you know danger that it's just a craze you know right <laughs> yeah like the tulip craze or whatever <laughs> that's right so it'll just pass which i think actually king loop says something to that effect at some point that yeah because more cows are coming so this is, yeah. this is the first oh, yeah. cow there's gonna <laughs> be a, a second chance. cow he also says at one point something like uh 
I believe different things in different places. Oh. I think, do you remember this scene? I don't remember that. That's really hmm. helpful. Um, I think they're at, he's talking about like w- whether or not he believes in, uh, re- I don't know, they're having some kind of religious discussion mm-hmm. and Kingley says, and, he, and Cookie says like, do you actually believe that? Mm. And he says, no, I believe different things in different right. places. Hmm. Which I think is sort of like, speaks to both the character's kind of wily mm. uh, adaptability, but also just, I think, something about that pioneer spirit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it also, I think it's also that, that you can have this kind of fluid sense of the world and like of understanding the world in this in-between space, whereas the thing that's coming, the yeah. represented by the chief factor, there's really not any room for ambiguity. Right, mm. right. In his world, in his worldview, you have he, he believes what he believes, mm-hmm. and there's really no, he doesn't believe different things in different places. Right, he's bringing yeah. with him a set of rigid social and class rules. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, whereas, that's really yeah. interesting, yeah. So, yeah, I think that, you know, those two characters, Cookie and King Lou are these kind of, yeah, fluid and kind of, mm. you know. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and going back to the real subject, the cow. <laughs> Let's talk about the cow. Let's talk about the cow. Well, did you see the cow had a baby? A24 posted this. The cow had a baby and they named it Cookie and it's beautiful. It's adorable. Well, Mazel Tov, (laughs) first cow. And welcome, second cow. (laughs) Well, the cow, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I partly mentioned it because in her interview, um, Reichardt talks about animals and has a Mm. lot to say about animals. And I remember at the press conference at the New York Film Festival, she also, as soon as she was talking about animals, she, she had a lot to say. Yeah, and I think in the yeah, and I was just looking at the interview here, and it and the it, I was reminded that the film also opens with that William Blake quote: "The bird, the bird and nest, the spider web, mm-hmm. and man friendship." Mm-hmm. And as we titled that interview, "The Social Animal," yes. I think that that animal thing kind of extends to to yeah. the humans in this movie as well. But uh, yeah, the animals are really interesting. That there's the cow in this movie. There's Lucy in. Wendy and Lucy. Lucy. Mm -hmm. And I think almost every one of her movies prominently features an animal as some kind of foil for one of the main characters. Am I I mean, like the oxen and Meek's Cutoff that are like kind of leading the wagons, I guess. Yeah. Maybe Meek's Cutoff is, and maybe not in Night Moves. I don't think there's any animals in Night Moves. Mm, yeah it isn't like there's a sneaky cat that lights a fuse at some point or something (laughs) sort of a cartoon (laughs) roger rabbit type situation with the lone ranger kind of mask on um but i mean yeah night moves i guess we could have a whole separate chapter on night moves because it's interesting to think about that in relation um but i think the animal thing is worth like and also in certain women i think Mm, she talks about in the interview how uh she was looking for a certain kind of, I think, right, uh, a certain color of cattle. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's just a real attention to uh, to the landscape and to those inhabiting and populating landscape and kind of respecting wherever they might take it, um, really. Because yeah. she's known for like her very extensive kind of location scouting, right? She kind of goes out there for weeks, yeah. sometimes alone, and just gets a sense of the place before they start filming. And you can really tell in her films, yeah. like these aren't. Kind of the, the the narratives are flexible to the contingencies of a place and like mm-hmm. what that might offer, as opposed to being pre-written very rigidly. Yeah. yeah, and the the other thing that she mentions in the interview was the owl too, which is something oh, yeah. I, which is something That's I hadn't right. thought about was this uh, how King Lou sort of sits in the tree, and there's a that shot of an owl, owl sitting in a You're tree, right. mm-hmm. and you know owls are wise and yeah. kind. Of, I don't really know what owls represent beyond that, but <laughs> but this, there's a parallel <laughs> between these two. Yeah. They're night creatures, I guess. <laughs> they say who. <laughs> they ask questions. But like, it, I didn't realize it was a trained animal. Yeah, and it's named Dimitri, oh. which is great. Yeah, I, I think it's a great detail. Yeah, this has to be one of my favorite interview right. moments that we've had. <laughs> Dimitri the owl, yeah. Oh. I mean, the owl, is, I don't think, has a very big role in First Cow. Make some hoots, I remember it hoots. hooting. That was kind of it. But if, but if with King Lou kind of sitting in the tree looking out, yeah. And kind of as the what as the mm. lookout, and mm-hmm. then you have Cookie down with this ca- with the cow, who's sort of a more domestic creature, sort of. Right. He kind of you get you can see these connections between these animals and and the people that that yeah, are that kind of sense. you know yeah. close to them. All of which, just when I was watching it, I felt like I was 
I had been really thirsty and was finally like drinking up all this kind of natural detail, natural behavior, and just the, yeah, the bucolic nature of it. You just, not only because we live in New York, but I just generally, <laughs> you can sort of feel starved for that in, in, I mean, a lot of, I don't know, not to generalize, but a, a lot of cinema, you, you can, you can feel kind of starved for that kind of interrelation with nature. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. And I, th- yeah. And, and I think also, yeah, I think just those, those beautiful shots of the woods and mm. just like the, the attention to detail. I mean, in terms of, in the terms of the way that, that nature is shot, like a very she, clearly whoever's, you know, the Christopher Blavelt and Reichardt like worked very hard to make sure that the trees looked a certain way right. mm-hmm. and that the grass looked a certain mm-hmm. way in, in the shots. I don't think they probably like painted it or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Each individual blade. But I, I think they were very much, they were careful to make, to, to kind of foreground the, the beauty of the, mm-hmm. of that world. Yeah. Which, yeah, it was a really interesting point because it's, it's, she, because, yeah, and just because it's not obvi- obviously beautiful. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a meadow. Right, right. right. It's yeah. not something that you would be like, oh, this is a beautiful, like, incredible right. natural landscape I'm looking at. It's just like a field or a, you know, some trees. Mm. But the way that they, the way that it's photographed really kind of draws out. Well, so much of it is like the light, right? Yeah. Because this is kind of a canopied space. So you, you never get full on direct light. It's always filtered through leaves mm. or branches. And it's kind of dappled when it falls. So you have like little bits of grass and leaf that are highlighted and golden and others are kind of in shadow. Yeah. And even there's a, there's a lot of mist, I remember. There's one moment towards the end where it's like clearly very cold in the morning and Cookie's breaths kind of just come out in these little tufts. I, I right, found right. it very beautiful. Yeah. And I th- yeah, and I think also in the interview she mentioned something about looking at a uh, Hudson River School mm, painters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think we were talking earlier about how like it is just kind of uh there there's something really painterly about mm. the compositions in this in this film and also about the about the way that the characters are placed within comp- those mm-hmm. compositions right. like in a Hudson River School painting where mm-hmm. it's the world that's the subject. Mm-hmm. And the people are just sort of right. part of that world or navigating it and kind of like getting lost somewhere in the mm-hmm. yeah. in a river valley. Um, and I think that the movie kind of achieves that without those wides, without really ever right. taking a wide frame. Yeah. Look. Right. Yeah. And, and she, yeah, she, uh, th- th- part of the, that's part of how she works with the cabin where they live as well. She's always, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they're just these notable shots of foreground and background where you'll have cookie in, in, inside and in the background through the window, you can yeah. see that, uh, that uh, King Lou's outside. Um, actually maybe we could take a moment to just talk about the actors. Cause I also think part of what makes the, meshes this movie, um, so well is that, is being with these people and, right. and, and the characters that, that each of them create. Um, I mean, Cookie, John Magaro, he could just be kind of disappearing behind his beard. <laughs> there's a certain, I don't know. Um, there's, there's kind of that aspect to it. There's just kind of this interesting, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, timidity, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Timidity, but, but, but this kind of shy friendliness that will, that will come out. But obviously there's some core of like tenacity because yeah. this poor guy has, has been a crook on 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 the trail with like these Will Ferrell like <laughs> like trappers. I think one of them was played by Will Ferrell, probably. And Vince Vaughn, I think, um, was the other one. Well, I remember reading something again in your piece, Clint, about how Cookie looks like he's about to just kind of dissolve into nature, like he's, mm. his clothes are about to fall apart. He's just about to, you know, circulate through this ecosystem. Once I don't know. Yeah, he almost behaves like a scared animal at the yeah. beginning when he hears a when he hears a twig snap and he just and he stands up real fast right. and looks around like yeah. he's like a a rabbit or something. Yeah, he's right. like a Boo Radley. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the act. I, yeah, it's also just he's the character is very innocent, mm-hmm. and I think it's hard to. Yeah, I think it's kind of remarkable how good of a job he does at yeah. like m- making that come through. Yeah, right. almost even I want to say like an artist-like quality to him like you know when it comes down he's like he's happy when he's finally able to be making stuff yeah, to be right. making oil yeah, cakes, yeah, right. you know no, that's true and he kind of then blooms and feel you know seems mm. to feel more at ease than, mm. than any other time and like the rest of the rest of his circumstances don't really matter to him as long yeah. as he's able yeah. to kind of have space to cook and bake 
and the fact that his innocence seems very anchored to this place and this like closeness with animals and nature versus like um, King Lou's kind of transatlantic like boat hopping immigrant journey um yeah yeah um and and, and that's also like a tough i think that's also a, a kind of um shrewd performance just because it's you know you it, it'd be very easy to make him the kind of wiser than everyone else person yeah. that you're always looking for for the for the clever line or for like the kind of lines you get in a western where some guy's just tossing off one-liners but i never really got you never get the sense of him being like that that person yeah um which is it's is a subtlety of like his delivery and positioning himself um it's i, I know it's very interesting exactly how um orion lee positions that character because he does throw out you know a few aphorisms yeah. here and there and he like speaks with some kind of authority but it never feels like overly assertive in an off-putting way right yeah or, or and it almost never feels too cinematic in a yeah, way yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah i mean they're they're both kind of uh, they don't. You don't f- know a lot about these characters, mm. and you don't find out a lot about them. But they both seem like you don't also suspect them of any kind of like uh, you know. Ba- they're not. You don't. You don't have any suspicions of them. Like because right. there's moments where you're like, oh, what's go-? like you in another maybe another actor could play it in a way that where it would be like, oh, what what's up with King Lou? Like right. what's on? <laughs> what's he trying to do yeah. now? Yeah. But I feel like they both are really uh, earnest. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're just immediate. You don't question their their friendship, and you don't question their business partnership. You just kind of, they just seem. It seems totally natural. I think in a part, and partly because they so clearly need each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like King Lou can't bake by himself. He can't, you know, <laughs> do any of this. And yeah. Cookie would. I'm not sure what he'd be doing, just scavenging for mushrooms again for fur traders. Like. Yeah. <laughs> that cookie, <laughs> scavenging for mushrooms again. Um, one one other person I want to mention is uh, Toby Jones as the chief factor. Mm. Which, just in case you're wondering what chief factor is, I mean, I have no idea. But it is it is like a governor. We've said that just well, so you when know, you hear the word, like, it's such a strange word. I still it's saying it, it still sounds. There's the, the regular factor. factor, and then there's the chief, chief factor. Well, and chief he wears factor, a black top hat. I apparently. feel like I'm on some like PBS show about math for kids. <laughs> like the chief factor and the like, next factor. Um, but but again, that that actually is that kind of testifies to Reichardt kind of doing the research and reading sources and John Raymond too. I John, think sorry, John Raymond, collaborator. Yeah, yeah. But but retaining that for the film, it's not like yeah. he's turned into like I don't know the governor general. Well, that would be pretty <laughs> obscure too. But um, but anyway, Toby Jones, um, Clint, I really love the line you have here. Um, played uh, the chief actor played as somehow a somehow sympathetic stuffed shirt. By Toby Jones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I like the same in the same way that uh, John Magaro and Orion Lee play their characters in this really earnest way. You don't feel the chief fa- Toby Jones is also his character is also just kind of who he is. Yeah, and you don't really feel like he's a villain or evil or somehow like a force of you know a bad a bad guy. He just is again like part of this system that he's in. Yeah, I and think a lot of that's like. It's established by the one of the first interactions we have with him, which is he eats an oily cake and he's just like enraptured by this baked good. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, right. Totally. So it sets this kind yeah. of like very sincere right. tone for this character. Yeah, which he immediately wants to commodify. Yes, <laughs> I think he says, "This reminds me of London." London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Um. I also, but I did want to ask you guys about that that weird scene where, uh, with in the woods in the cabin with when after Cookie gets knocked out, there's a scene where Cookie gets knocked out. He's yeah. on the run at one point. Is this a spoiler alert? It's Aww. not a spoiler. It's kind of such a magical. Could be surprise. any part okay. of the movie. It could be at the beginning <laughs> that, of the movie. Tr- yeah, <laughs> could be at the middle end of the movie. We don't know. But he at, he wakes up and he's in this strange uh, house in the woods. Yeah. And he's kind of dazed and he looks around and he looks out the window and he sees a man uh, performing some kind of ritual. Yeah, I mean, he seems to be moving with the wind, but you could hear the wind more than it was immediately obvious that he was like trying to work with it. Right. It looks very much like somebody doing Tai Chi to me. It it, it does. I have no other reference point. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then and then he looks at the he looks on the other side of the room and there's an old woman kind of weaving something or doing some by a fireplace. Then he falls asleep and then he wakes up in the middle of the night and tries to leave and walks out 
Mm-hmm. And he and hears a growling and looks in the woods and you see these glowing eyes of wolves. Right. And like a wolf growling at him in, from the woods. And I think this is uh, one of the few times in the movie where nature becomes kind of um, aggressive or scary mm-hmm. or frightening mm-hmm. and uh, potentially harmful. But mm-hmm. I, but uh, it's also just sort of a kind of a fairy tale moment, I think. But, yeah, um, whole but I'm thing. interested to hear what other people thought of that of that particular scene yeah i mean it's it's it is kind of a a a mystical moment i mean you were talking about in between spaces it Mm. it just seems like that's there are a number of realities going on there (laughs) that you you i yeah you feel like you can access at that particular moment in in history that different people could be in very different places i don't know just states Mm -hmm. of mind now i sound like i'm talking about the 60s or something it almost was like but it almost was like an old hippie in portland like i was like this place looks like an old hippie house in portland and like he just is somehow like transported i think they were both definitely indigenous like that was my only oh that was your that was your anchoring point like i think the woman in the fire near the fireplace and like the the old man outside dancing with the wind or whatever yeah i think they were both definitely indigenous Mm -hmm. okay yeah and the fact that they were taking care of him felt significant yeah yeah right that's true, yeah but there was also yeah. something kind of like that was also one of the few uh points in the movie where you're kind of where it's kind of like creepy mm-hmm. yeah. like the house is creepy uncanny yeah, yeah. uncanny yeah and there's uncanny. wolves surrounding it yeah. there's no wolves in the rest of that forest that's, apparently you're right, right. There's no wolves at all. <laughs> he doesn't yeah there aren't wolves there yeah oh yeah or was it all just a dream? So, well, that whole sequence, like... <laughs> was, uh, I think the whole movie was a dream, and then he's just waking up. Dude, that's crazy. <laughs> it's just like The Matrix. <laughs> Proving my theory that all movies are just like The Matrix. You take the red oily cake? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sad to say, dear listeners, this is my second Matrix reference of the day. The, the first one was not... I think that's what mic. inspired me, yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, Matrix on the mind. Well, um, that might we might bring this in for a landing, might a crash landing, crash landing <laughs> in a cabin. No, we'll just uh, you know lie down on the grass peacefully in the forest um, with, with the this end podcast. of first Fic- cow. I no, figuratively speaking, okay, in this good. podcast, we'll we will lie down on the grass and rest. Um, any any final final thoughts? A final thought. Well, this is like my first thought. When I first saw it at um, in the New York Film Festival, there, w- there hadn't been a trailer cut. I didn't know anything about it. So I had no idea that one of the main characters was a Chinese immigrant. So that was really cool to see. Mm. Oh, that is I cool. just had no idea. Yeah. Because the book uh, has them as two separate characters. Yeah. Like there's just a Chinese character and then there's this friend character. And rolling them into one was great to see. Yeah, I thought it was a great... Yeah. A yeah. Great but that, that, that also seems like an f- actual full picture of the west and, and the possibilities at a certain yeah. time in, in the u.s instead of like well literally like a white white watch and in the book they like they come back at the end right and that with and he has a new friend uh, with a chinese guy yeah. oh, you, well you say so you read the book well, not, not to get started but you so you read the i i read the book you read the book <laughs> and i'm just just for i don't know people might be curious how it differs well i mean so the book takes it the book is has this weird flashback uh, right, you form. Right, right. And so there's, it's about these two teenage girls in like maybe the eighties, late eighties in Portland, Oregon, who live on a, co- a hippie commune. And like one of them is kind of troubled and they're making a movie together. Oh. Um, and so this has, it had, but it, the, it has kind of like a young adult vibe. Um, and then on the, on the, at the commune, they just, these two skeletons are discovered and the two skeletons are the bodies of these two right. friends. And then it kind of, so then it jumps back to the 1820s for the, with mm. these two friends and uh, the two friends are cookie and this other guy whose name I can't remember, who's, who's not a Chinese immigrant, um, but is sort of a hustler and entrepreneur. Mm. Um, and he goes into business with cookie. They start selling beaver um, glands, I think. And they get a bunch of ble- beaver glands and they're taking them and they get on a ship and they go to China to sell them in China. They get arrested in China because they sneak into the Forbidden City and Cookie goes to prison for like 40 years. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> this is, and this, okay. It gets very like, it, gets, it diverges a lot here. So, but it's interesting because what happens is he becomes best friends now with this uh, with this Chinese man who he's in prison with who's oh. on the other side of the wall who's oh. a who's a political dissident but master calligrapher. 
And oh, so he like communicates okay. with him by like tapping on the wall as one does in prison. And uh, Cookie's great cooking skills. He learns how to cook great Chinese food. He learns to speak Chinese. Then he and his new best friend are released from prison. They decide to go back to America together. And then they're they're kind of this couple, and they like they live together, and they and they kind of sleep up close to each other. I don't know if they sleep in the same bed, but it's kind of implied that that that's. I mean, the case. I see one bed in the movie. I don't. I don't see another bed. Like, yeah. If that. So so what? Then then you know, that's what happens. Wow. And then the, okay. oh, and then uh, there's some historical circuit. You know, some event happens. Some like riot happens, and they uh, run out of town. And that's the end of the movie. And, and, the, and, the, and in, the, in the process, they fall over and die. <laughs> and, oh. and then their bodies are discovered years and years later. Okay. By these two I, children. I can't quite tell if you're putting us on. I'm not putting you on. This I, is the real story. Like, we I, might want to cut this whole thing, though, because it is very long and tedious. But that is the real story wow. plot of the book. Story. Okay. It's well. a very, yeah, it's very different. And I, the movie's very different. It, I think... Mm. It really is just much smaller. It's like yeah, I mean, they cut out this entire contemporary, this entire contemporary story or yeah. '80s story with the two teenagers, and then they cut out the entire trip to China, and they and, I mean, it really just drills down and focuses mm-hmm. on. I mean, again, it's just like a very, the scope is just so, uh, so much more. I guess it's reduced. But in, but more powerful, I think, as a right. result, because it's not this. The book is very much an epic, like a his, it's a historical epic, historical mm. novel, and this is an epic on a very small, small scale, hmm. about like you know, maybe a couple weeks in two men's lives. But we always know that there's this kind of like looming epic that's off screen because they're all part of a, a narrative that implicates them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Story hour. <laughs> Well, I think we can we can end end it there. Uh, first cow, Kelly Reichardt. Um, read about it in our March April issue. Uh, there is also the interview available only in the issue, and we'll also have a podcast interview with Kelly Reichardt that will be uh, materializing on the website at some point in the next few weeks. In the next thing. <laughs> thank you, digital editor. Um, but that's the end of our discussion, and thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. The Film Comment podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Baccarat from directors Kleber Mendonça Filho and Giuliano Dornelis, winner of the Jury Prize at Cannes and an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival. Baccarat is now playing in select cities.